Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On April 20, 2010, communities throughout the Gulf Coast of the United States were devastated by the explosion of the Deepwater Horizon a state-of-the-art offshore oil drilling rig operated by British Petroleum in the Gulf of Mexico. The blast killed 11 of the 126 crew members and injured many more, setting off a fireball that could be seen for 35 miles. Two days later, uh, the Deepwater Horizon rig collapsed and sank, causing one of the largest oil spills in American history. Oil spilled unabated for nearly three months, dumping millions of gallons of oil into the ocean, shutting down local fishing industries, polluting the fragile ecosystem, and raising questions about the safety of continued offshore oil drilling. In her thought-provoking new documentary, The Great Invisible, Peabody Award-winning documentarian Margaret Brown travels to small towns and major cities in Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas, interweaving personal stories with insight from industry insiders, news footage of the disaster, and the people directly involved. She she brings together a wonderful, terrific story in this great documentary called The Great Invisible. We are joined by the director, Margaret Brown. Margaret, welcome to Film School. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, um, I, I know from the past, uh, some of your earlier work, uh, as I mentioned, Order of Miss that you're from this part of the country, the, the South and the, the Gulf area. Yes. Um, is that one of the reasons why you decided that you wanted to do a story? Had you, have you been hearing a lot about it? What was it that prompted you to move forward with a documentary about the Deepwater Horizon disaster? Um, well, actually, it was a series of photographs that my father had sent me. Um, I, was, I was actually making another film in Ecuador and um, was... My dad sent me some pictures of our house, or his house in Alabama, um, and how there were pictures of, like, workers down there, and there, there was this orange boom, um, which was supposed to prevent the oil from reaching the beach that the volunteer fire department had put in front of the house. And he sent me these pictures, and I just couldn't believe it. It just looked like there had been some kind of invasion um, into their house. Like, a, it, it was, there, was, there were a lot of people, and... My father was so upset, and I think that was sort of what started the whole thing for me. Well, what was your first step after you, you seen these photos? Uh, did you you said you were in in where were you Ecuador? You said I was in Ecuador. So, some time later, you came back to this part of the world, to the Gulf. Uh, where did you start? Where do you start pulling on sort of the thread of the, of a story like this? Um, well, actually, what happened is I you know I didn't really know if I could make the film, and I, for the Order of Myths, I was going to the Peabody Awards, so I went to the awards with a proposal in hand and approached um, mainly PBS, like the um, independent branch ITVS, and said, you know, I'm from there, you know, you ju they had just done the Order of Myths with me, they just put it out, and I said, can you get me down there right away? And with a few other organizations, they, they got me down there within the week, and we started filming when the oil basically the first day the oil hit the beach in Alabama, I was there with a the camera crew. So it was it was pretty quick. It just sort of, I, I didn't know that that would happen. I mean, I'd never had something like that come together so quickly, and then we were just down there doing it. What was your first reaction? You're down there on the beach, you've got your camera, you're starting to film. Did Was there anything that 
you know, was it the magnitude? Was it seeing it, uh, this goop ro- uh, roll up onto the shore? What was th- what was that the first day like and then your reaction on sort of on a personal level to it? Well, there were really two things emotionally. One was just that it was incredibly surreal because these are beaches that I spent like my high school years, like going to the beach with friends. And there's just tons of workers on the beach with like, you know, special gloves on and, and, and coverings over their feet and they're picking up oil off the beach and there's people there who, you know, had already scheduled their vacations, like photographing them on their cell phone. Mm. So it's just really weird, first of all. And then, um, and, and that, that scene actually, that the first day we shot is in the film. Is, is that the saw. one with the, the, uh, the, the, the couple and their small girl? Yeah. Kind of the heavy set guy? And, and yes. yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then, and then also like the first day we got there, they were closing, they were closing the beach for fishing. And that was just incredibly depressing. I mean, that's just never happened. And I was just like, God, what, when is it going to open again? Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was both like surreal and just really sad. People were so sad. Well, and, and I think we need a little perspective here in terms of the importance of fishing, the fishing industry for the people who live in the Gulf, around the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. in Alabama and in Louisiana, Texas. Tell me about, just sort of give us some sense of, and I, and I think it's more than just an economy. Tell us a little bit about the full spectrum of how much of an impact fishing has on this region. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a lot of the seafood in our country comes from the Gulf of Mexico. So, and it's also interesting in that um, a lot of people who work in the fishing industry, a lot of their families also work in the oil industry. So it's strange. Like, um, I think there's not a whole lot of um, distrust, or there wasn't before the spill, a whole lot of distrust of the oil industry before this happened. It was sort of, I mean, there's a there's a shrimp and petroleum festival in Morgan City, Louisiana, where they celebrate harvest, and they're talking about harvesting both seafood and petroleum. So, you, I mean, you can see these things are pretty, people don't think of them as separate in the same way they might in other parts of the country. Uh, and isn't the largest collection of oil refineries in the United States right there in Louisiana, sort of the tip of Louisiana? I mean, I don't, I don't know the oh, answer to that. I think there's, I know there's a lot of it around yeah, yeah. Um, Lake Charles, but I can't, I don't, I can't speak to that. <laughs> <Okay>. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Margaret Brown. She is the director of a documentary, The Great Invisible. Now. Um, one of the strength of this film, The Great Invisible, is the access to the people who were most directly involved in um, in the Deepwater Horizon explosion. Uh, what was really chilling in terms of, as a viewer, was to see the footage that was shot by, who was it? It was uh, Doug? Doug Brown. Doug Brown yeah. shot that. Uh, that was a great introduction, by the way, just to sort of put us in the place where it wasn't too long after that was shot that the explosion actually occurred. So talk to us about the people and, and gaining access and a little bit about that footage, um, how you came to, to, to get that footage. Well, um, when Doug, it was very, the hardest access um, thing in the film was actually getting the survivors to agree to be in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, They struggle with PTSD and their wives were definitely afraid that um, participating with he mentally like bring up things. I mean, they they both have nightmares and that are really, really overpowering. And so I think it was just this conversation: is this going to help or is this going to hurt? 
so that was um, that was something that took a long time. It was a lot of trust, um, and you know, so we spent a lot of time with them before they kind of really let us in. But at a certain point with Doug Brown, um, a few days after we'd started filming on, I think, the second shoot, um, he came up to me and said, I filmed on the Deepwater Horizon. Um, I made a movie just to show my family what it was like to live offshore because he was really proud of his job and, and, you know, he loved his job and he wanted to share it. And so he made a, he made a film to show his family and he said, you know, would this be valuable to you? Do you want to use it for the film? And I was like, I, you know, I'd love to see it. And then seeing it, it was just like, it just blew me away. I mean, it was like if you had footage of the Titanic before it sank, I mean, it was just unbelievable. So it was, it was one of those moments when you're making a film where you just realize you've been given an incredible gift to make people who, you know, had never been on a rig or, I mean, and more than had never been on a rig, it was footage from the Deepwater Horizon. So it was yeah. Really incredible. And Doug was the chief mechanic, and as he describes himself in the film, he knew the Deepwater Horizon rig frontwards and backwards. He knew everything he needed. You could know about that that rig. So yeah, when it you... was like his baby. He like was really proud of it. He was there when it was built. It was it was it was like almost a person to him. Yeah, and uh, and others that uh, were also uh, part of this uh, the the Great Invisible. Uh, Keith Jones is the father of Gordon Jones. Tell us a little bit about Gordon and Keith. Um, well, actually, I just we just had a screening in New Orleans last night, and Keith was there at the screening. So, um, you know, uh, Keith and and a lot of the characters in the movie have been have been part of of getting the film out there, which has been really great for audiences. Um, and yeah, Keith um, Keith is a lawyer, and his his son Gordon was the first person in his family to work offshore and um you know and Keith talks a lot about he explains in the film I mean a lot about his his own personal feelings but then also he is sort of our gateway into explaining um a lot of the legal things with yeah. with BP but let's let's talk about some of the the people who were there for the other people in the film uh talk to me about Roosevelt Harris and the work that he was doing as a uh, uh, he had a ministry. Tell us a little bit about him. As or his, well, um, Roosevelt, his he 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 worked at a food bank that distributed food to people in the community. A lot of whom were out of work because of the spill. And so we sort of got to see. I don't know. I think it's part of America that we just don't normally see, which is um, the people who like shuck the oysters and go shrimping. But um, it, it's it's just sort of an un, at least to me, and I'd grown up 23 miles away. It was kind of this unseen America, and it was fascinating. And we get to kind of see it through his eyes, and also kind of through his heart, because he has a lot of heart. And um, you know, in the face of this disaster, he just um, it was it was really great to be around him because there were so many things in the film that were difficult and and were very just hard to listen to the stories of the survivors and what they were dealing with and. You know, and then to go and the next week later we'd be shooting with him and someone just, just helping all these people. It was, I don't know, it just it sort of gave us some hope in the face of a lot of despair making the movie, I guess. Right. And, 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 and it's very much in keeping with what we've heard about that region of the country since Katrina, that it's mm-hmm. the humanity of the people that are there, that they, they do look out for one another. And, yeah. and Roosevelt's as a person seemed very much uh, a part of that. Yeah. And he wasn't just like all sweetness and light. I want to be clear about that. I mean, right. he's, he's a, he's a salty guy, but it was, 
it was just um he's well rounded you know <laughs> but um but he it, it just was it was it was fun to get to see things through through his eyes yeah and and there really is a resiliency to the people of this region i mean obviously when you when you live in a part of the world where uh hurricanes blow through that air your part of the world on a regular basis and the travails of nature are upon you at all at different turns uh you you have to be ready to not only uh you know take care of yourself but step up and help your neighbor and and yeah it's that is good to see and it, you're right it it did provide it is, does provide a nice balance in the film yeah no i um it was it was definitely i mean i mean i grew up with hurricanes and i just remember growing up like you know you'd, you'd be at home and the phones weren't working and someone would bring you some ice or some food that was going to spoil if they didn't share it. And there definitely is that, that thing that happens during a hurricane when people, I mean, you know, some people close down, but a lot of people open up. Yeah. How many, just out of curiosity, in your life, how many close calls have you had with hurricanes growing up in that world? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I left when I was 17, but I really remember Hurricane Frederick. I remember the whole family sleeping around the fireplace with the dogs and the wind howling. I mean, I was really young. The wind howling all night. And, um, that'll, you know, and I remember a, a house down the street, because um, tornadoes come and hurricanes got, got lifted up and moved. I mean, it's just it's just very random what could happen to you in a hurricane. And, um, and people just don't leave. I mean, when Katrina hit, I remember just begging my parents to please just go somewhere. And they just were like, oh, you know, we always stay. <laughs> people are just they just don't think it's going to happen to them with the hurricane and um and I, but i think there's a difference with a, with a man-made disaster like a spill there's no there's no roadmap for how you deal with a spill and um and i think that was one of the harder things about it like with the claims i mean some, you know the oyster shop across the street might get a ton of money and you might get nothing and you have to go out of business and for for some reason you can't figure out and i think that was like one of the things that it, that is a, is a strain on a community because people, you know, there's there's je- jealousies and stuff because it, it, it's sort of no sense in it or doesn't seem to be. So I think that was something that's a little bit harder about a man-made disaster. I think that is a fascinating observation that that with a natural disaster there is a kind of a a tradition of how you move forward. The, uh, there's yeah. an understanding of how you're going to get past all this and with something that like the BP oil spill yeah it's a it's a completely new roadmap mm-hmm. and something that seems nothing. yeah it's it seems random as you just said I, I think that you said it beautifully it's it's a very sort of haphazard random and it and it's difficult to even understand the the environment you're in because you're dealing with a company with a lot of money a lot of lawyers and a lot of reasons to not want to pay out a lot of money yes and yeah. uh exactly. yeah oh. well again and roosevelt provides us with this sense of humanity that um, and it seems and you I mean you know better than I assumed even to this day as we as we talk about the great invisible people are still very much committed to the way of life that they that they've been there for generations yeah and and again one of the strengths of this film uh, is that you you'd go as I think a lot of great documentaries do you go from the micro to the macro and back again and um, th- that's certainly the case here. It wasn't just the, this explosion of the Deepwater Horizon and the impact it had on the environment and on the economy, but on the lives of these people. 
profound yeah. impo- in, impact on their lives. Lane, let's talk just real v- very briefly uh, I, I, the, about The Great Invisible is the title of the film. And mm-hmm. when I knew what it, the film was about and before I had a chance to see it, I assumed we were going to be talking somewhat about uh, the application of the dispersants on the oil slick that was massive throughout the Gulf of Mexico on the part of British Petroleum. Uh, and in a way, it isn't, the film isn't about that, but talk to us a little bit about, for people who don't remember uh, the event and what, what was the, what were you talking about when we talked about dispersants? Oh, do you mean dispersants or about the title? Because I feel like they're two different. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> good, good point. Well, let's just right now talk about the, the use of dispersants and then we'll, we'll go to the title, talk about the title. Um, well, the film isn't. It's, the film is more about the human ecology. It's not as much right. about the dispersants because I felt like in making the film, um, a lot of the um, impacts on the environment will still be measured for years to come. Mm-hmm. And it just became clear to me at a certain point if I wanted to make the film, um, it would take 20 years to make that film. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there, you know, in the film, there is, there is, um, you see a plane spraying dispersant and. You know, and and everyone down there is always talking about how um, it was very cosmetic. You know, um, they sank it so people wouldn't see it, and it, people, you know, wouldn't get upset about it. But I think the people in the region—I mean, everyone kind of kind of knew. All the fishermen were like, "Yeah, they're just trying to get it out of out of out of sight, out of mind." Yeah. Um, but the title is is actually broader. It's not just about the dispersant, or right. even really about the dispersant. It's sort of about. Um, I mean, I don't really like to explain it entirely because I think it's kind of like the title The Order of Myths, like it has many meetings. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is this invisible factory under the Gulf of Mexico that we're all connected to that kind of fuels our lives. And I feel like how we're connected to it is something that we don't really ever think about. And to me, it's sort of more about that relationship. Yeah, and and I agree. And I, I just, just as someone who, as I was saying, <laughs> I didn't know what, I hadn't seen the film yet. I think, oh, I remember, all, I mean, this was a thing when it was being, uh, you know, these planes, you'd see these big planes flying when the, just dumping this stuff into the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And even in and of itself, I mean, the oil itself was going to have a tremendous impact on the environment. But knowing full well that this was very toxic material, it, it, I just can't imagine, you know, the kind of long-term, as you described, 20 year, 25, 30, who knows how long this will have an impact. Well, it's funny, like, people are, are writing on my Facebook page, as they do, um, writing me messages and saying, like, oh, like, my, you know, we went on vacation, and, and there's still, my son came out of the water, and there's still tar balls on him and yeah. stuff. I mean, very anecdotal stuff, but people are, you know, um, people are really angry. <laughs> yeah, well, for, with very good reason. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with the director of The, the Great Invisible, and that would be Margaret Brown. We'd also know her from The Order of Myths. And the film of, on Towns Van Zandt, it's called Here to Love Me. What do you think we've sort of learned? Um, what, well, let, what, is, what are the lessons that have been learned by the people of the Gulf of Mexico? I mean, I think the, one of the lessons that's been learned by a lot of the people in the Gulf of Mexico is, there, I think in, in Louisiana in particular, there was people just really trusted the oil industry. I mean, it put people through college, um, you know, you know, it could kind of do no wrong. And I think after this, just sort of seeing, I mean, I think also the BP ads that they ran were yeah. just people were just really angry about that because they're just just out and out propaganda. I mean, it is true that a lot of the tourist areas have been cleaned up, and it's funny. Like, um, 
after the Deepwater Horizon, some of the tourist areas had better seasons than ever because people didn't even really know there were beaches in Alabama. So, um, you know, after those ads, people did. But um, in terms of, like, the, the, the fishing industry recovering and the oysters, um, that's just not, you know, it's, it's fabrication. So I think people who are down there just hate those commercials. Um, but in terms of the rest of the country, I mean, I don't know that we learned anything. I know that nothing changed in terms of um, safety offshore with our government. So I'm not sure. Um, you know, I hope the film will sort of educate people as to what didn't happen and maybe what we can do now. Yeah, and I, and I, I agree. I think this film, it is so easy to, for these things to get kind of lost in the rearview mirror of history as we... We power our way through, uh, you know, our lives, our daily lives, and the sort of the political lives of our, this country to lose sight of this was the largest oil spill in the in the history of the republic, uh, and it and it was I by all, most accounts that I've read, it was certainly preventable. It was a matter of human error and neglect and greed, and, and the idea was trying to get more oil more quickly. Uh, yeah. And and um, I, I don't want to drag, go down too far down this road, but uh, the 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 sort of judicial side of this, uh, people getting uh, the money that they were promised by British Petroleum, mm-hmm. has been very slow in coming, has it not? Well, I think it depends on who you are. I think if you got a good lawyer and um, you know worked in in you know, you had a condo somewhere. I mean, I think it was a lot easier for certain people who were used to filling out um, filling out complicated forms or had someone helping them. Um, but I think, like like it shows in the film, um, a lot of people who work in the seafood industry and might not have as much experience with that were not getting the same kind of treatment. Also, like, you know, the Vietnamese um, population who are seafood workers, I mean, there often weren't even people who spoke their language um, who were working in the claims facilities. Um, I remember in Bailabatri, there was there's a big Laotian population, and there was definitely no one there at the claims facility helping people fill out forms. So it was just really hard for people to, to figure out what to do or get basic services. Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, to, I don't know, in the film, um, there was a... It was Keith was talking um, to somebody who said... They didn't have any idea, or what was it? They didn't have a tax return because they don't. Everything's done with a handshake, or so, uh, you know what I'm referring to. Oh, that's Kenneth Feinberg. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, was talking about the, the people that he had been talking to about going to BP and getting some some money for the damages done, and mm-hmm. it is it's a very different way of life there, and, and the idea that uh, many of these people are just going to be out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was interesting. I mean, I think. Um, with the commercials, I think people other places we would go to other places to maybe film a satellite interview and people interview and people would say, "Oh, I thought that was cleaned up or I thought that was done," and we, you know, I saw the commercials, you know, and we'd be like, "Well, <laughs> that's no, I don't think that's exactly the truth." So it was, it was um, being on the ground there and just seeing it was a whole different thing. Margaret Brown, what is your reaction when you hear someone? that seems that disconnected. I mean, you're, you're obviously close to this, close to it for a lot of reasons, the, the story and the impact it had on the Gulf. But when you hear people 
actually believe it. I always wonder, do people just assume that this is de rigueur, this is what's going to happen? They're going to put out a bunch of ads and that says, hey, everything's fine, but people don't really believe it? Or when you come across people who seem to have accepted it, I, I don't... What's your, do you have a reaction to that? I mean, I mean, I'm kind of amazed that people would trust those commercials, but it just seemed like a lot of people did, you know. Um, but there were also people who were, were, it was clear to them that they were, yeah. you know, sort of propaganda. So I think, I think people saw both. I don't think, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's one way or the other. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Margaret Brown. She is the director of the new documentary, The Great Invisible. And, um, I want to, uh, before I let you go, I want to, I want to acknowledge a wonderful crew above, uh, below the line, if you will, of people you've been working with on this, uh, on this film. Julie Goldman's producer, she's been involved with a number of just wonderful, wonderful films, as well as Jeff Oran's. Um, tell me Jason a little bit Oran's of... actually. I'm sorry, Jason. Uh, okay, uh... So talk to us a little bit about the people that were uh, responsible for helping you put this project together, because it's a great team of people. No, it was kind of like a dream team of people to work with. That was It was incredible. Um, Julie Goldman and Jason Orens produced it with me, and um, also um, Passion Pictures in the U.K., um, uh, uh, John Batsek was, was an executive producer, um, the folks that participant, I, we worked together with them as well, and um, Diane Wireman, and um, you know, it was it was an incredible team of collaborators. It was I I couldn't believe my my luck. <laughs> <laughs> and also in terms of putting this everything together, uh, the directors of photography that you've had, you have Adam Stone, Jody Lipes. Mm-hmm. And also Jeff. They all have hard names. It's Jay Jeffrey Pichot. <laughs> Pichot. All uh, the, and that's one of the beauty, uh, the beautiful things about the film is the it, the look. It obviously uh, uh, came out just as a a beautiful film in and of itself. So. Yeah, I mean, I wanted it to be a portrait of the South. You know, I mean, sort of through the lens of the BP spill. But it was, I mean, you know, it was it's it's a very Southern film and. I, it needed to feel that way, and that's something we talked about a lot when we were shooting. It's a great film, and I'm so happy that you were able to, to join us today uh, on the show. Um, the film is The Great Invisible. The director is Margaret Brown. Um, people want to find out more about it. Where can they go? They can just go to thegreatinvisible.com. Okay. And there's also a Facebook page, um, the Great Invisible, and Twitter, Great Invisible. Very easy. <laughs> okay. All right, Margaret. Well, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.